to my surprise, the first thing that, that Tokayev did is he had a speech, you know, right after sort of the dust cleared. And he says, I'm, I'm embarking on the reforms. I'm going to do the reforms. All the reforms I promised, I'm going to make them happen. And it's not that these are ideal reforms by any stretch of the imagination, but usually when this kind of thing happens, you hear leaders talk about cracking down and that's it. And so to hear discussion of changes and reform and responding to some of the public demands was positive. How far that will go, we don't know. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, an entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. Kazakhstan is Central Asia's largest country. This former Soviet Republic has worked to chart its own course in a restive region, navigating the geopolitical tensions of its over 30-year existence. Much of that period occurred under longtime leader Nursultan Nazarbayev. That was until the dawn of 2022. Mass protests in Kazakhstan began peacefully, with marchers denouncing a sharp rise in fuel prices. The scope and the agenda of the demonstrations expanded quickly from the western part of Kazakhstan to more populous areas, eventually reaching the largest city of Almaty and the capital of Nursultan. Large crowds vented their frustration with worsening living conditions and severe wealth inequality under the authoritarian government that has maintained a tight grip on power since the collapse of the Soviet Union. This triggered a call for an incursion into the country by a Russia-led military alliance and the presence of Russian boots on Kazakh ground. What was the uprising in Kazakhstan? How did it emerge? And perhaps most importantly, what does it mean for the future of Kazakhstan? a country occupying the beating heart of the Eurasian continent. Jennifer Brick Murtazashvili is the founding director of the Center for Governance and Markets, a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an associate professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. Her research focuses on issues of self-governance, security, political economy, and public sector reform in the developing world. Murtazashvili has advised the United States Agency for International Development, the Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit, the World Bank, the U.S. Department of Defense, and UNICEF. Murtazashvili has served as a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer in Samarkand, Uzbekistan. She is the president-elect of the Central Eurasian Studies Society and a member of Ponars Eurasia, a research organization focused on security issues in the Eurasian region. Thank you, Jen, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. Uh, so Kazakhstan's longtime president, Nursultan Nazarbayev, governed the country for nearly 30 years. And how did uh, Nursultan govern Kazakhstan during his tenure? And what was his impact on Kazakhstan's development since its independence from the Soviet Union? So, I mean, this is a very complicated question. And usually these kinds of answers aren't as complicated as they could as they should be, but but in Kazakhstan's case, it's it's it is complicated because the country has vast natural resource wealth. It's something really important. I think what I want your listeners to understand is just the huge amounts of gas and oil reserves that the country sits on, and so the government has benefited from that extraordinarily, and so have many at the top echelons of power. Now. Um, in terms of how the country has been governed, it's been it's it's been an authoritarian state. There hasn't been much political openness, although it hasn't been quite as authoritarian as some of its neighbors. Um, some would even argue it's more politically plural in many respects than neighboring Russia. And certainly among Central Asian states, um, it wasn't as politically free as Kyrgyzstan, for example, that had, had lots of democracy, um, but lots of upheaval. 
but but Kazakhstan, you know, had more openness. It had more economic freedom. Um, it really tried to provide assurances to uh, Westerners that it would, uh, you know, treat their investment safely. So there was this social contract that existed between the citizens of the state, and the government did provide more public services, engaged in much more substantial governance reform. Um, the country had a higher per capita GDP, you know, on average than any of the neighboring countries. You can't even compare. Um, so the quality of living, the quality of life in Kazakhstan is much higher than it's than neighbors. Um, but having said that, the country has so much oil wealth and so much it was, well, it was squandered and everybody knew that, that the elites were making a killing on it. So I think that's really what drove some of the upheaval that we saw over the past month in, in Kazakhstan. So looking more recently, in 2019, Nazarbayev stepped down and he brought forward his handpicked successor, Kasim Yomart Tokayev. Um, do you have an idea of why this happened and how has that political transition been managed since that since uh, that handover of power and what role has Nazarbayev played in the Kazakh government during this transition given you know his history over Kazakhstan over the past 30 years right so when he made that decision in 2019 it came a couple of years after the death of Islam Karimov Karimov was the long serving uh, president of neighboring Uzbekistan and Karimov died quite suddenly quite unexpectedly. Um, and it wasn't clear for about 10 days who was going to be in charge of that country. And I think a lot of people looked at that experience and said, you know, especially in Kazakhstan, probably neighboring Tajikistan and said, we have to prepare. We have to prepare for a transition. So picking a handpicked successor um, was, you know, sort of the first move in this regard. But also Nazarbayev, he retained control of the main political party that he ran. And he also retained, most importantly, control of the national security services. So he, he still was president of the National Security Council in Kazakhstan, which gave him you know, really important control over most important issues in the country. So Takayev you know, had a reputation as a technocrat. He worked for the UN. He speaks Chinese. He spent a lot of time in Europe. Um, he was well known to many um, who work on Kazakhstan, especially foreigners. So he was seen as sort of this technocrat who would sort of succeed Nazarbayev. Um, and it was, I think, surprising to many that Takayev during his period really you know, created his own people, his own program. And what we've seen over the past several weeks is sort of this fissure between Takayev and Nazarbayev for control of the country. So... I guess this one way this manifested was uh, the lifting of price controls on liquefied petroleum gas or LPG for our listeners. This came into effect on the 1st of January this year. And for their understanding, why did this happen? And why did the sudden increase of liquid uh, the prices, excuse me, of liquefied petroleum gas negatively impact many Kazakhs? So there were protests that began in Western Kazakhstan really right after the new year. And it was because this price prices of this liquefied petroleum gas increase. Now, uh, in, in Kazakhstan, especially in Western Kazakhstan, now it's important to note Western Kazakhstan is the site of all the oil and a lot of the oil and gas production. And so the people who are being harmed the most by these price increases were the people producing the oil and gas wealth. Something else important to understand is that about 10 years ago, actually almost 10 years to the date in December, um, 
there was a massive uprising of oil workers against the government in Western Kazakhstan in the same city where these protests began. And the government killed about 16 protesters. And it's seen as one of the darkest days in post like independent Kazakh history. And so during December, when it was the 10th anniversary of those protests, the government put a lot of control on like the public squares. So when these gas prices increased, I think a lot of people had this sort of pent up anger. Um, it marked a very emotional time for many people. The reason the liquefied petroleum gas prices increased is because there'd been a lot of smuggling, a lot of black market activity related to them, related to this gas. Um, a lot of people sort of jerry-rig their vehicles to run on liquefied petroleum gas. Um, it's cheaper than benzene. So people like throughout you know, much of Central Asia, you'll see people put these tanks in their trunk so they can get their car to operate. I mean, if you ever in a car accident, it's a disaster. If you ever rear-ended, it's a, and, and I, unfortunately I've had people I know severely hurt in such accidents. But it's a very, it's a much cheaper way of operating your vehicles. And I read that like up to 80% of people in Western Kazakhstan were relying on this LPG to drive their cars. So when you see such a huge increase um, in the prices and the, and the reforms that increased those prices were long planned. It was not a surprise. It was several years in the making um, because this black market exists, because producers were, you know, operating at a loss. Um, and, you know, part of a good reform process is that you want, you know, your prices to be based on, you know, market allocations. Now, whether the state can subsidize those market-based allocations at a later time is another thing, but getting them, getting all of the transactions and all of the gas sort of into the system, um, I think was the major goal of those reforms, but they triggered massive unrest. So we saw these um, protests, which began in Western Kazakhstan, then um, sort of spread like wildfire throughout the country. So as you, you had just said, upon the onset of this sort of drastic spike in liquefied petroleum gas prices, um, there were images of protests that began to appear on social media between the 2nd of January and the 5th of January. And um, initially, these images were waves of kind of sporadic, but generally nonviolent rallies in most of the major cities in, in Kazakhstan. But they quickly grew into these sort of massive rallies across the core urban centers of the country. Do you do we know anything about what the protesters demands were and how did they go beyond just the price of liquefied petroleum gas? So, you know, they began on these gas issues, but they quickly turned to governance issues. Um, now, unfortunately, the protests didn't go on long enough for there to emerge like a very strong leader of these protests. So, you know, in some of the cities we saw um, demands being made, um, but in other cities, you know, there was no, they were headless protests. In, in some cities you saw like a list of printed demands that protesters were making. Um, a lot of them had to do with like many of the things that President Takayev had promised. So over the past several years, he had promised things like governance reform. He had promised election of local officials. He had promised, you know, better public goods and services and things like that. He had been uh, out there championing championing a lot of reforms, but he didn't deliver on them. So in those first couple of days, I was kind of optimistic that like this would lead to a nice outcome. It would, you know, Takayev would assert more independence and he would deliver on the things he'd promise. Um, and, you know, when he removed Nazarbayev, this was the first thing we heard is that 
he was removing Nazarbayev as the head of the National Security Council. I said, okay, he's going to be more unconstrained to produce this reform agenda that he had long discussed. But what we saw actually emerge was something very, very different. We saw protests across the country, but in southern Kazakhstan, especially in Almaty, these protests turned very, very violent. So it's important for your listeners to understand is that those protests that began in the beginning were not violent. They were you know, average citizens out protesting, but something turned for the worse when the protests um, emerged in Almaty. And what we saw from the accounts that we've read, and, and you know, it was really hard to know at first because the government shut down the country's internet for like three days. So it was really impossible to know what was going on, um, but it looked like supporters of the Nazarbayev government um, sort of street thugs and people from bazaars, um, these sort of dark networks, you know, tied to the security service, began engaging in a lot of violence. And they are the ones who burned down Almaty City Hall. They are the ones, um, you know, who uh, were engaged in a lot of the the most destructive violence. And then there was a confrontation between the security services and the protesters, and it's, you know, there's estimates at like 250, more than, at least more than 200 people have been killed. It's not clear who was shooting, when or why. There hasn't been a full accounting of what's happened. So the violence though, it seems to be not between like the peaceful protesters and the government, it seems to be about Nazarbayev supporters and the state. And this was in response to Takayev taking control of the country. And it seems to be, you know, pushing Nazarbayev's people out. And, uh, you know, a lot of these leaders, op things operate in the shadows. And so, you know, there were these reports that people shared. If I was a peaceful protester in Almaty and all of a sudden all of these guys showed up wearing all black, they were showing up in cars with no license plates. It was very strange. And then they had like clubs and sticks and then they went to go attack buildings. And I think that was seen as an effort to try to force Tokayev to resign. It backfired. And then Tokayev calls in Russia and we could finish this story. Yeah, yeah of course. So to, to harp a little bit on your point about uh, Nazarbayev supporters engaging in the more, more violent aspects of this sort of, of these sorts of protests, these direct actions, um, were they were, were they the ones generally targeted, at least in Tokayev's mind or the mind of the state, in these sort of shoot-to-kill orders that Tokayev had kind of initiated on the 6th of January after you know, the protests had begun to spiral into this more sort of violent episode? Right. I mean, it was very strange. Tokayev then said that the protests were caused by, you know, pro-democracy people, colored revolutions, um, and then he mentioned two, 20,000, a network of 20,000 people, including foreign fighters. And he blamed foreigners for the unrest and, and was hinting, and one of his officials said it was people trained in Afghanistan and other Central Asian republics, you know, hinting at like Islamic extremism. And that became really difficult for people to believe. And because leaders had done that before, anytime there's unrest, you blame foreigners, you blame the Taliban and the Taliban are like, we know we're not, we're not involved in this. Um, what is this? And um, it, it was, it was not plausible. And, you know, there was actually this really interesting case where uh, President Takayev on, on Twitter, he came out and blamed foreign people not speaking Kazakh. And we're like, who, who are these people? And then the next day on the news, they parade in front of the television, this poor young man, 
uh, with Bruce obviously subject to torture. And he said, yes, I am from neighboring Kyrgyzstan. I came here to join the riots. I was paid $200. And he was clearly tortured. People immediately recognized this person as a famous jazz pianist. He's from Kyrgyzstan and he was playing a concert in Almaty that day and must have gotten swept up in this somehow. Um, <clears throat> and so he was eventually released, but it made everything just look really silly. I mean, he was a very famous, well-known uh, concert pianist who has a job and, and doesn't need to be you know, paid $200 to join a street protest. Um, so it just, and it really upset neighboring Kyrgyzstan as well. Interesting. So another byproduct of kind of all this is that uh, Tokayev had sacked Nursultan Nazarbayev and many members of Tokayev's cabinet who were generally more aligned with uh, Nazarbayev. What do you think are the potential implications then for Tokayev and just the Kazakh political landscape in general, given that, you know, th there was this idea that these sort of more violent aspects of the protesters were pro-Nazarbayev um, aligned forces or, or groups of people um, and more kind of engaging against the Tokayev government in that respect. So he calls in um, the Russian security service. He calls in the CSTO. Mm -hmm. And this was clearly a sign that, um, that Tokayev doesn't have control of the security services, that he fears reprisals from Nazarbayev and Nazarbayev's people. And there's a lot of speculation that, you know, this is a conversation that Takayev had been having with Moscow for some time. This just doesn't happen overnight, but Russia was ready, prepared. And I imagine that there were some conversations that like the Russians had with Nazarbayev's people about standing down. And this was a very strong sign that Takayev is now in charge of the security services and in charge of the government. And he was backed with Russian support. And so this was a game changer and really unprecedented to have like Russian troops come into Kazakhstan to you know, protect the country's political system and really protect the country's elite. It was not, I mean, as far as I can tell, it's really hard to say because you know, the information still is still trickling in and, and people you know, are still sort of afraid to speak about what's happened. But you know, Kazakhstan um, gained its independence from the Soviet Union in 1991 and has been very, very proud of its independence and its sovereignty. And um, this sovereignty has been, you know, its most cherished aspect of um, the past 30 years. And so asking Russia to come in, get involved in an internal domestic dispute really makes many people question Kazakhstan's sovereignty. And uh, it's not clear whether the people of Kazakhstan support this, support having Russian soldiers in Kazakhstan, I mean, imagine like if the violence were to continue, then you'd have Russian soldiers shooting at Kazakhs. Um, so it, it's really hard to understand, um, you know, how the how the public perceives this. But on the other hand, you could see a lot of people saying, you know, this is law and order. We want stability. We value stability over everything else. And we're happy to have it. So kind of looking at that Russian incursion more broadly and just for our listeners, the CSTO is the Collective Security Treaty Organization. It's a Russia-led military alliance of six countries that Kazakhstan is itself a member of. Um, Kazakhstan kind of shares this long border with Russia, the longest continuous international border with Russia, actually. Um, but that aside, why would Russia and why would Vladimir Putin seek to get involved? Why did he send 3,000 Russian paratroopers to quell the unrest? Is it shaped by Russia's past relationship with Kazakhstan? And if it did, you know, how so? 
Well, Russia, you know, as we are seeing throughout the world right now, Russia really sees itself not as a regional power, but as a global power. And uh, so the CSTO was the organization that took on the reins of the former Warsaw Pact. So you remember that there was NATO and then there was the Warsaw Pact. Um, and the Warsaw Pact, you know, dissolved when the Soviet Union dissolved, the CSTO was an effort to resurrect a security alliance among the countries in the former Soviet Union. Now, there were 15 republics, only six have joined the CSTO. So you can see it's not that popular. A lot of these countries don't really want any Russian involvement. But in Central Asia, you do have 7,000 CSTO, mainly Russian troops, in Tajikistan. And, you know, the reason that they were brought in was to sort of prop up the government there after the end of the Tajik civil war in 1997, but they have remained for decades um, to protect the, the Afghan-Tajik border. There are CSTO troops in Kyrgyzstan. So Russia has had this like substantial presence, military presence in Central Asia. They see Central Asia as its sphere of influence. Russia would be very happy to continue to have an influence in Kazakhstan and, and Takayev, you know, thank Putin. He says, thank you, Putin. Thank you, Russia. I am grateful to you for being in power. Kazakhstan controls a lot of oil and gas. What does this mean? Uh, Russia wants that oil and gas. Maybe it can get now a subsidized price from Kazakhstan um, for those resources that Kazakhstan has. So it's not clear what Russia is going to get out of it. But I think it is clear that Kazakhstan is, is much more in aligned with Russia than it was before. It was always close to Russia, but I think this solidifies its role as a key Russian partner. And Russia is very happy with this. This is a very low cost intervention for them. So what does the Russian and CSTO incursion then mean for the CSTO as a body um, kind of beyond just Tokayev's future relationship with Russia, which I assume is now more, more solidified and, and tighter than it used to be? Um, so Tokayev is now, I think, dependent upon Russia. And so a lot of people are asking, what does this mean for Kazakhstan's sovereignty? Can we call Kazakhstan an independent state? Um, if it's foreign, is its foreign policy going to be controlled by Moscow? What about its domestic economic policy? What about the prices of oil and gas? Who's, how much influence is Russia going to have on Kazakhstan's domestic economy? We don't know the answers to this right now. Um, and I think that's something we're really going to watch out for. What does it mean for Russia and China? Um, you know, China has, has a major economic role in, in Kazakhstan. Um, it launched the Belt and Road Initiative in Kazakhstan. So there's strong partnerships there, strong alliance. We could talk about Russia and China and their relationship, um, but definitely puts uh, Kazakhstan firmly in in uh, in Russia's camp. That's that's uh, that's that's very interesting. And kind of looking into sort of the long term implications for Kazakhstan, what do you foresee happening? Is there an opportunity for genuine change in Kazakhstan's situation, its political system, or do you see this more? as a trigger point for deeper repression and a more iron-fisted government that's led by Tokayev and, and backed more firmly by the Kremlin? So, I mean, this is this is a good question. It's one we don't know the answer to. I would expect more repression. But to my surprise, the first thing that, that Tokayev did is he had a speech you know, right after sort of the dust cleared. And he says, I'm, I'm embarking on the reforms. I'm going to do the reforms. All the reforms I promised, I'm going to make them happen. Um, so that was pretty encouraging. I mean, if we're going to see a silver lining, um, they'll still be controlled by him. And it's not that these are ideal reforms by any stretch of the imagination, but usually when this kind of thing happens, you hear leaders talk about cracking down and that's it. 
And so to hear discussion of changes and reform and responding to some of the public demands was positive. How far that will go, we don't know. Um, so, you know, what is the political atmosphere going to be? It's still unclear. Thank you very much for, for uh, answering our questions today. This was a great discussion. Oh, and anytime. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.